Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's episode is from our Sunday Adult Faith Formation Forum, Purity, Gender, and the Gospel, led by Mark Gravrock. For more information on the community and ministries of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, you can visit our website, smlutheran.org. And now, here's Mark Gravrock with an opening song. Take, oh, take me as I am. I don't know if it was coincidental or not, but to have a coincidence that we had that announcement this morning of the, of the council's decision to move ahead with the process of becoming a reconciling Christ congregation. Peggy and I came here to St. Mark's three years ago now, and um, when we came, we found this delightful, welcoming and embracing and uh, open congregation. We sort of assumed it was already a reconciling in Christ congregation, uh, and learned that no, that's that's something that's, that's been set on the shelf a number of times. Studied it, looked at it again, and then waited, and then finally we're in the process now, and I'm delighted that we are. Uh, we came from Montana before that. We were, I was pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran in Kalispell. The last time I understand that St. Mark's had any kind of study of the biblical passages around sexuality was in the lead up to the 2009 ELCA decision nationwide that, that um, finally opened congregations to call an active gay pastor, 
a, a, a gay pastor who's actively in relationship. Uh, that, I don't know how that went here. I understand you had about a year's worth of study together, maybe a couple of years of study together in advance of that. We were in Kalispell, we weren't at Bethlehem yet, but 2009 blew up that congregation. Montana's a little different territory than here. Um, I came um, as interim pastor there in 2010, a year later, with the first job to be to work on healing and to work because the congregation was realizing what we had done to one another in the process of a really awful debate and vote and a lot of pain. And so it was finally, um, as, I as I wanted to, um, we did initial healing steps. And finally, when it got to the point where, where I, I was wanting to spend time as a congregation digging into the scriptures around these things, and each year the council said, mm, not yet, not yet. Finally, I think it was the last year I was there, we had a chance to spend actually about twice the amount of time that we'll be spending here uh, in these texts. I began that with, um, because of the nature of what they had all been through, I wanted to have us be aware that we're coming at this from all kinds of different places, all kinds of different commitments, all kinds of different anxieties around it. Um, including one of them being that some of them in the congregation were, were gay and the rest of the people in the congregation were talking about them. There was this kind of awkward, awkward situation of where are you in this situation? Where are we all in this situation? What I ended up doing was, because I didn't dare ask the congregation, so where are all of you in this? What are your commitments? What, what, and what are they based on? I decided what I needed to do was to lay out eight different positions for where people stand on these matters and why. And I, went, and I took them all as if they were my own. So I went through these eight different positions and then I, then I asked the, the people, did I get yours in there? And at that point I'm seeing lots of nodding heads. Yeah, yeah. And then they added a couple more that I hadn't thought of. So part of what that's about is that as we gather here, we're bringing all kinds of stuff into the room. We're in different places on this. Um, as you, as I, wrestle with the questions of sexuality, sexual identity, gender identity, and all the rest, and how that fits with what's appropriate in the life of faith, a lot of what we're carrying is history. We've got centuries and centuries of history in the church and in society that lead primarily one direction. And to buck that, to make a change in that, is really revolutionary and difficult. It may be that history is where you're anchored in all of this. Uh, inner experience. Um, whatever your personal inner experience of God's presence, of your own sexuality and gender identity, and all of those questions, that's a key piece. And that may be, in fact, the defining piece for you. This is who I am. This is who I need to be. This is how I need to live out my life. Relationships. I won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, how many of you have this or this or this in your family? I will say that for Peggy and me, we've one of the new pieces for us is in the last year or two, we've discovered that we have a, a, tran, a trans son. Uh, this, this once upon a time little girl who now is a boy in the process of becoming um, our grandson. He, he now is our grandson in the process of making all the changes that will be made and all the anxiety and questions and turmoil and joys and discoveries that are part of that. 
that's a brand new issue for us as we're finding our place in support and in love and encouragement and a lot of learning for us. Jesus and the gospel. It may be for you that the person of Jesus and his message and his gift of grace and the gospel that he brings is the heart of all your decision making around this and everything else becomes secondary. But that's the driving force for you. And then in there, there's also this Bible. What does the Bible have to do with it? If we believe this is God's word, what, what, in what sense is it it's God's word? How does that work? How does that, what, what is the role that the Bible plays in the life of our faith and in the th our thinking that goes around this? We could add a bunch more bubbles up here too. One of them we could add is um, current scientific discoveries. Although, for most of the time, as I listen to people, science rarely determines their, their decisions. We end up picking the science that we like to back our position that we already have. But we could put that up here. We could put several others. All of this is just a way of saying we're bringing a lot of stuff in here. And as we wrestle with scripture and the issues of gender and all the rest, um, all of these things are at play in the room. And so I'm assuming and asking as we go into this that we come into this with the same uh, commitments, the same covenants that we always enter together here with, of trusting one another, of uh, trusting the best in each other, of not uh, impugning people's motives, or, but of um, let, letting the spirit help us hear one another in the group. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay. I want to say a little bit about where, I've, where my journey has brought me. Um, and to start with, there's a little bit of a difficulty with uh, terminology. I was going to introduce myself as someone who all my life has been uh, male, white, and straight. And suddenly for the first time it dawned on me that straight is kind of a loaded word. If I say I'm straight, does that mean that people who aren't straight are crooked? <laughs> I've always called myself straight. What am I saying when I say that? Anybody know what the current term for straight is? Cisgender. Is that a term you use every day on the street in our lives? Well, when I first heard that term, I thought, okay, that may be better. Cisgendered, meaning you are the, you live out the gender that you appear to be, that you were, the fixtures that you were born with, etc. Transgendered is something different. Well, the first, the first place I ever heard that prefix cis was back in uh, Roman history. That's, of course, where you've all learned it, right? <laughs> the only place I'd ever heard those prefixes before was in the time of the Roman Republic, before it became the Roman Empire, before Julius Caesar. There were the Gauls that lived up. You see, can you tell where you are? This is Italy. Rome was down about here. Uh, the Gauls lived up, lived up in this area and over beyond the mountains in southern, what's now southern France. Well, the Gauls in here, they called the Cisalpine Gauls. That means the Gauls on this side of the, of the Alps. And these are the Transalpine Gauls, the Gauls on the other side of the Alps. Do you see how that term's loaded, too? Cis is the near stuff. Trans is the, the other. Even in our newest terms, they're loaded. We can't get away from that. That's all I'm wanting to say with this, is that as we struggle, 
and we're struggling to learn new vocabulary each time this comes around, and each time a new awareness comes to us comes to the surface. We don't have good terms. We just keep grappling with trying to find what's the best way to say things in a way that will be embracing and understandable. I'm not sure that cisgendered is the best, but that's what we've got right now. Enough of that. My journey. Um, I grew up in a pretty traditional household in the Midwest. Um, my dad was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. We understood the scripture as God's word, pretty plain and simple. Not a lot of ifs, ands, or buts around it. Uh, I didn't know anybody who was gay or anything different, or at least I didn't know that I knew anybody who was gay, which is probably closer to the truth. Um, what really started to shift me was a passage in the Gospel of Mark. This is, I'm, this is probably the mid to late 80s. No, it's, no, it's early, mid 80s. Uh, the Gospel of Mark where Jesus meets a leper. And the leper says, if you will, you can cleanse me, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will, be clean. But you know what Jesus does before he says, I will? You know that story? He touches him. We're now in the purity code. When you touch a leper, guess what? You're unclean. Jesus makes himself unclean um, ritually, according to the purity law, by touching that man. What, is, what, what, what do you suppose that did for the man when Jesus touched him? Shocked. Felt loved. That yeah. So that guy knew perfectly well all the purity regulations. He knew that Jesus was making himself unclean by doing that, and he knew that Jesus loved him enough to set that aside, broach it, whatever term you want to use, to touch him and welcome him and embrace him. It's a deep act of love. It's really important. That passage convinced me. That's about the time we were starting to become aware of AIDS. And that convinced me that if Jesus were walking the street today, he would be today in the late, mid-late 80s, he would have been dealing with people with AIDS. Who at that point, at least as far as we knew, were gay, almost all. It wasn't very many years later, well, I came to teach at Lutheran Bible Institute in Issaquah. Um, and that's when, as you maybe read in the bridge, where Maybe my first year there, I had a student come to me and say, Pastor Grabrock, I think I'm gay. What should I do? Seminary had not trained me for that question. Um, I did a lot of listening, along with several other folks who came and talked with me and told me their stories. and uh, got a good education from, from my students. Around that time, I began to think, LBI had, the Lutheran Bible Institute had um, these um, Every student was to be involved in an outreach ministry of some kind. Anything from teaching Sunday school to working in the local prisons or whatever else. And I thought, we ought to have some ministry that's dealing with uh, folks with AIDS. And we finally found a partner in Seattle who could link us up with a chore ministry, Multi-Faith AIDS Project of Seattle. Uh, Peggy joined me in that process. And we, for a couple of years, for several years, our students and we worked in these homes, did chore ministry in these homes with uh, low-income gay, gay guys with AIDS. And during those years, they all died. 
every last Peggy went to so many funerals. Um, that was a pretty deep experience for us and part of our education as well. When I finally got an opportunity then to go back and do my doctoral work, I thought, now finally I'll have a couple of devoted years where I can spend in the seminary libraries digging into the scriptures and digging into all the theology and everything else, and I'll, I'll finally be able to know the answer to what the Bible says about these matters. I spent those solid couple of years and then actually wrote my dissertation on Leviticus, Leviticus 18, if you believe that. Anybody who writes on Leviticus? Weird. And after all of that, guess what? I'm not going to give you the answer. Because I don't have the answer. We're not going to be saved from the struggle with Scripture and the issues and the grace of God and how all of this fits together. But there will be some things I can share with you and some things we can wrestle with together. There's a lot more I could tell you about that journey, but uh, that's enough to give you a sense of who I am and where I'm coming from. Thoughts or questions before we move on? Okay. If you've ever been involved in, the, in questions uh, particularly of homosexuality and the scripture, you'll know there are seven hot button topics, seven hot button texts, yes? The first two have to do with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to spend much time on those at all. We could if we had a lot more time. It's, they're worth spending time on. But I'll simply tell you that the issue in Sodom was not homosexuality or gay, gayness or anything like that. Never in the world do you have an entire town of males who are all oriented in that direction. This was not sex. This was rape. This was violence against strangers. It was a common thing in that part of the world for victorious soldiers to rape the ones that they conquered. It was a sign of, of degrading them and of humiliating them. That's what these men of Sodom wanted to do with these strangers that were brought into Lot's house. By the way, do you know who the strangers actually were? They were angels. The folks in Sodom didn't know that. I'm not sure if, if even Lot knew it quite yet, but they were angels. The passage in Jude echoes the story in, in um, in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if we, we could spend some time on that one as well. What it's really talking about is not gay sex as it is the desire for sex with another kind. Um, literally in Greek it says they, they uh, lusted after other flesh. Well, if you took that literally, that would mean men lusting after women or women lusting after men, wouldn't it? What it's really about is human beings lusting after angels. It's, if you read the text in context, it's really getting at a very different issue. That's all I'm going to say about that. We can look at that more carefully another time if you wish, um, but those, I'm going to just touch on those and say there's really something different going on there than, than most people make out of it. Two texts in Leviticus we will spend time on significantly next week. Um, these are the primary Old Testament texts that forbid male with male intercourse. Um, in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, we will explore that. They are embedded in what's called the purity code of the book of Leviticus. And that's kind of the primary starting point.
for biblical conversation around these questions. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul probably invents a word that's not shown up in any Greek literature before Paul. It may be that someone else invented it and he picked it up, but he's the first ever to use it. Um, it's interesting to watch all the different translations of that word over the centuries and how it's been handled. It appears to deal with uh, male with male sex, but there are questions around it. The same term gets picked up in 1 Timothy 1. It doesn't add anything new to it, but we will spend time on 1 Corinthians 6. And then probably the granddaddy of them all, Romans chapter 1, um, where, Paul talk, where Paul talks about the degrading of people so that men wanted to have sex with men and women wanted to have sex with women. It's the only passage in the Bible to speak of female with female uh, relations. We will need, of course, to look at that one. So the ones that we're going to be spending time with, not today, but in coming days, are the four that I've bolded there. And notice that three out of the four deal with what's called purity. It's interesting that when Paul, in this key passage, when he talks about what's going on, uh, he never calls it sin there. He calls it impurity. So we need to discover what's purity. That's where we're going. I put on the sheet there the nature of scripture. We're going to spend time talking about the nature of scripture all along. So I'm going to skip that bullet point for right now. Where we're going is today we're going to look at purity, not in the Bible so much as purity here and now today. And try to get a feel for what in the world we're even talking about. Next week, Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible. That's where we're going. Um, two weeks from now, we're going to look at passages that aren't particularly sexually oriented, but they're places where the Bible, where the Old Testament pushes back against some of the purity notions that we'll be looking at next week. That doesn't often get talked about, and I think it's important to see those. November 13th, we'll get to Jesus and how Jesus handles purity and all the questions around, around that. And then finally, on the 20th of November, we'll look at Paul and these these passages. And at that point, if you haven't had enough, we'll have to set up another time. If you had too much, you can leave it any time. Okay. Yeah. Quick question before you leave the nature of scripture. Yeah. Um, uh, in one minute, because I know you've thought about this in all of your life, in one minute, what do you say to uh, the 18-year-old who is struggling emotionally, but scripture says, what's what's the immediate, other than, yeah, but lots of humans misunderstand it. Yeah. Is that what you just say? Mm -hmm. let, let me say a sentence or two then, because I, I think that is important tonight. I dismissed it too quickly. Um, first of all, it's really, I really wish we had other single bullet point passages in scripture that would say the opposite. All we have that are single, well here it is, and here it is, and here it is, and here it is, all go one direction. And so it's really easy if um, to, 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 an to anchor a conservative position scripturally by simply appealing to these seven texts. And what other passage are you going to look at? Exactly. That's where it's really important to me that we spend time 
unpacking those passages and looking at them at the sweep of scripture and what God is doing. What God, what's God up to in all of this stuff? And how is God involved in the messiness of our, of our gendered lives? Uh, anytime somebody's come to me and said, so what does the Bible say about homosexuality or something like that? My usual answer is, how many hours do you have? Because there isn't a quick bullet point. So that's what, what I, we need to immerse ourselves in what's going on here. I will tell you this about my convictions in scripture. I am convinced that scripture is, in a, in a way it's a lot like Jesus, fully divine and fully human at the same time. Scripture is a human product, a product of human communities. You can look, you can read Paul's letters and you'll see his personality loud and clear, whether you like his personality or think his personality stinks. Um, the, the humanness of Paul comes through really clearly. And I, I love the passage where he says, um, God isn't saying this, I'm saying this. That's 1 Corinthians 7. Well, if that's scripture, and scripture is saying, this isn't God's word, what? <laughs> um, at the same time, this scripture is God-given. God breathed the Holy Spirit involved in some mysterious way in the creation of the community, in the creation of these scriptures, in the working through the scriptures so that they, they are alive for us. The reason that we don't just set these aside is because as a community of faith and as individuals, we've discovered that the living God addresses us in these texts. It's a, it's a, powerful, a powerful thing. I can't set them aside. There are a lot of scriptures I don't like, but I'm called back to them again and again to ask God, what are you doing? More and more I'm coming to a, a view of God partnering with human beings in the, in the very call of Israel, the very creation of a community of faith to serve the world, in the creation of these texts, in the life of the community, God is partnering with us all the way along, and it's a genuine partnership. Uh, and these things are in motion. They're, they're living and they're active and they're going somewhere. That, that's, a, that's a beginning point anyway. That the scripture's living and has evolved. And will continue to. Yeah. At, at what point the way I think you're saying is that the scriptures are for us as individuals, but at what point do we get where instead of letting God take care of the offense, that we take the offense and say, well, we have to do something about this. I mean, that's kind of the world view right now is you're rotten, we have to take care of it, and we're going to decide how you live rather than let God deal with the issue. Yeah, and we do that with scripture. One of the weaknesses of, one of the dangers in seeing scripture as this dynamic living partnership between God and human beings is that if I want to, I can just look at any passage I don't like and say, oh, well, that's just kind of the humanness showing through. God really didn't mean that. It's really easy to dismiss anything I don't like. Um, and that usually means I need to look at that one more carefully. Yes, what I'm saying is, why don't we have the view that that's God's direction to us, 
so we can butt out and let God take care of it if he's offended. True. Why don't we let God take care of it? We can butt out and let you face land where it may. Okay. I, I will share with you one my, my favorite passage in Paul about all of this. This should be for the last session together, but I'm going to give it to you now. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, I think it is. Paul is addressing the question of women continuing to wear the veil. Um, I don't know if it was like a burqa today or exactly what that veil was like. Um, these women in Corinth have apparently heard Paul's message that in Christ there is neither male nor female. And they're saying, woohoo, we can lay aside these rules. We can drop the veil and start living like men live. And Paul trots out every argument he can think of. Paul's scared stiff. And the men in his congregation are scared stiff. Paul trots out every argument he can think of to get the women to put the veil back on. Some of the arguments are scriptural, some of them are societal, some of them are wacky, some of them are really solid, some of them are flaky. Uh, he comes out with every argument you can think of to say, women, please put that veil back on. And in the middle of it, he says, nevertheless. And that little word nevertheless in Greek is a powerful word. He's saying, in spite of everything else I'm telling you, women, you're right, and this whole thing has exploded. Nevertheless, in the Lord, Men and women are not, are not independent of each other, but they are dependent on one another and together in this partnership in the Lord. He's saying, okay, women, you're absolutely right. The gospel of Jesus has blown this whole thing to smithereens. And I'm trying to save these pieces and put them all back together. I love that passage because it shows Paul's own conservative heart. And he's not a revolutionary himself, but he sees how the gospel is transforming everything. And he's, but, but, but wait, but wait. That's what the wait. Okay, we need to get a handle on what purity is. Let me ask you first. Do we have any purity codes in our culture now? Do you have any idea what we're talking about? Sure. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's easier when you look at other cultures. Every culture around the world has, you might not call it purity codes, but they all have purity codes. Um, they're kind of norms that are written into our guts that the community adopts together and lives through together. Um, but they're not all the same. And we developed a lot more during COVID. Yes. Absolutely, we developed a lot more. It was amazing how much purity regulation came back into our lives during COVID. I've had a friend, we do some Bible study, and one of her questions is, why is purity and sin always based on sexual stuff? Tell her it ain't. <laughs> That's part of what we're about here. But here's my first question, what's a weed? Something you don't want. <laughs> a plant growing in the wrong place. A plant growing in the wrong place. Okay. Is that a weed? Yep. Dandelion? Yep. To the early settlers, they had catalogs of, um, of dandelions because it was an essential a part. They, it was the first green that came up and they ordered them and planted them 
because that was the way after a, a winter that you prevented scurvy. So prevent it was, scurvy. It was yeah. They were bitter because cool. you couldn't. You didn't have the fresh greens. You needed that. So no. To many nope. people. I mean, now I'm not thrilled about them on lawn, but <laughs> yep. yeah, people. They weren't always a weed. No. Let me ask you too. When you were five years old, was that a weed? No. No. You loved them. You made chains out of them. You did. Blew their seeds and blew their the seeds all yeah. over the place. Yeah. Okay. What is dirt? Source material. Source material. Source of life. Source of life. Is she dirty? Oh yeah. Especially if she's going to a wedding. She's <laughs> going to a wedding. Has the flower girl. Yeah. Yep. How about that one? Is that dirty? No. No. What's the difference between those two pictures? Purpose. Appropriateness. Appropriateness. For the gardener, whose hands are immersed in there, and here's this plant growing out of this soil, that's, that's not stuff out of place. That's what dirt is for. That's what soil is for. It's not supposed to be on my face. Well, timing is everything. <laughs> <laughs> timing is everything. <laughs> Purity has a great deal to do with matter that's out of place. And, of course, who decides what's out of place? What's in place and what's out of place? The culture does. We decided as a culture together. What is noise? Something that's hard on the ears. Something that's hard on the ears which can change with our age and all of that. Is that one noise to you, or is that one music to you? Music. Noise. Might depend on who you are and what you're... Yeah. Harley Davidson took them to court because they couldn't have the same noise as the Harley. That is was that right? litigate, litigated, yeah. We litigate the noise. Wow. How about that one? Which picture is louder, by the way? If it's a tsunami, it's pretty loud. A tsunami is pretty loud. Would you consider that great picture noise? No. Notice how with all of these, whether it's a weed or dirt or noise, it depends on whether it's where we want it to be and what its source is. There's nothing in the nature of the sound itself that makes it noise or not noise. Okay, modern purity rules. It was easier in lots of other cultures that were more homogenous or homogeneous to, um, it's easier in other cultures to pick out what the purity rules are. In America, we've got all these different cultures that have dumped in together, and so we've kind of lost a lot of those specific ones. Uh, we've raised up some new ones instead. But just to, for example, let's say that um, we invite you over to dinner at our house, and uh, when you arrive, we say, by the way, I hope you're okay with this, but the meal tonight is dog. <laughs> Must be in the Philippines. Must be in the Philippines. <laughs> or Korea. Or Korea. What did your guts do when I said that? They said, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Anybody have any inner thing going on? About eating dog? Which kind? <laughs> Hot dog. 
a there's a subjective matter in this as well as a cultural one, and for many of us there's a visceral component. In a lot of the purity, a lot of what's behind purity stuff, there's a there's an ew factor. There's something in the gut, and it's not necessarily um, universally human because different cultures have different ewes, you know. But there is, but that factor is a universal factor. I think not all purity is ew stuff. But much of it is. Eating dog in our culture, not good. Here's one of my favorite signs. I'm old enough to remember when those first started appearing in restaurants. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Why? Cleanliness. Cleanliness? Keep out the riffraff. Keep out the riffraff. Let me, let me address the cleanliness piece of this for, the, for a moment. If you go into a restaurant, and you're a male, and you go in bare-chested. Um, how is that not clean? Armpit hair. <laughs> Armpit hair. <laughs> hmm. well, I, I'm, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, aren't there sort of evolutionary, um, biological reasons for purity codes? around health and sickness and cleanliness that then we sort of turn into culture? Some of them. I think that's true of some of them. I think there are health issues that, that underlie some of those issues, but not all of them. But you can go to an out, on a beach, go to get a hot dog at an outdoor hot dog stand without a shirt or a male. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah, so location is going to matter, so, isn't nobody it? Nobody thinks that's unimportant. There's some context. So that if you're, if this is a beach restaurant with outdoor tables, but it's part of the restaurant, um, and you see guys there just dressed in, dressed in their swimming suits, they just came up off the off the beach. There's no problem with that. My mother used to always say, "No shirt, no shoes, no service. There should be no pants." But it says no pants, so. That actually was my question. Why doesn't this sign say no pants? <laughs> Everyone wears pants. Not, not <laughs> I see this as a way to say, can you pay for it? Because this is a way of, this is a can class thing in my, in my opinion. This is a class thing. Interesting. Because, you know, the chances are if you are dressed correctly, then you have the means to pay. You have the means okay. to do it. You know what's expected of you in a restaurant. You're not homeless. You're not a beggar. You're not, you're not all these things that this is a class thing. That, that's an interesting comment. Is there class issue, a class issue going on in this? Not all purity has class stuff going on, but some does. Class often plays a role. And just another example of this one then is to move it up a few notches to go to a restaurant where men must have a tie and a, and a jacket. Why? Is the food taste any different? Is it less healthy? Is it? This is not health at all. I see this sign as wanting the place to have people show respect. Respect. I think you're right. I think there is a deep respect issue going on in this. The underlying question is, what makes shirtlessness disrespectful? Which just simply puts the. I think you're right about the respect. 
but that puts the question back another level. What, what is it that makes how we're dressed a matter of respect or not? I saw this, this really came up, I think you referenced it, um, at the time that the hippies movement was yeah. spreading, right? So we don't want dirty hippies in, in the restaurant. That's right. It makes people feel uncomfortable, I think, which I think is a large part of it. Uh, if you were used to a certain yeah. way of being in a restaurant, you know, exactly. And it used to be that way with how you dress for church. That there was a particular way to dress for church, and, and that's dressed, changed. And how you dress version, current version is the baseball cap. Mm -hmm. yeah. Baseball cap, and whether you're wearing it indoors or not, or wearing it in a, a class or a restaurant. A restaurant yeah. At the risk of being um, sexist, I think there's an overlay of paternalism that it's safer for you to be here with a with a shirt on and with shoes on, and oh. An overlay of paternalism and not taking care of you. I think you're right. And that's embedded in much of the purity codes as well. The other thing is, I don't see why nobody sees that no shirt is, you know, skin contact, and then you'd have to clean the area because it is dirty to have your skin on places, and then somebody else comes and sits sure. down and you have contact. I'm sorry, I'm But you know, much dirtier, <laughs> much dirtier than my chest are my hands. Right. For me to put my hand on your table. I was going to say, you know, when, when you were laboring, you got sweaty and stinky, and so you would take your shirt off to labor. Mm -hmm. So that, I think your point, too, is that sure. you, know, you come in and you are a laborer and you are stinking up the place. Which plays into classes again, too. Or maintain what's customary. Maintaining what's customary and afraid of change. Maintaining what's customary and afraid of change. That's a piece of this as well. Okay, I've got some more here. Anybody know what she's doing? <laughs> she is not doing yoga. She is peeing. The only reason I know that is because I did a Google search for free images of peeing in the garden, peeing in the yard. And this one came up. So that's how I know she's peeing. Um, is that okay? Yes. That's borderline. Borderline. Well, she gets passed because of her age. There we go. Does this one feel any different? No. Uh, just for the record, we have a three-year-old granddaughter. She pees in our yard regularly. We actually encourage it. If you can't make it into the house, if you're not ready to do that, just pee out here. It's fine. Um, we do it when we take her for walks, keep her from peeing on the neighbor's yards. Um, so let me ask you, at what point do you want adults peeing in your yard? No. Why not? Exposure. Well, how about if they're really well, she is really discreet about it. They're kids. They're kids. What makes it right for kids and wrong for adults? So my father-in-law was a farmer, and when he worked in my backyard, he never came in the house to go to the bathroom. So I knew that he was using Woody Green for his bathroom. Mm -hmm. What God give us trees for? It's your property, though. 
How, how many of, let me ask it a different way, how many of you hike? How many of you, when you hike, hold your bladder until your hike is over? <laughs> Why is it okay to pee in the woods, but not okay to pee in your backyard, or your neighbor's backyard? State property versus your property? Property matters, okay. Okay, I'll, I don't need an answer to these questions. All I'm trying to say is we have deeply ingrained purity laws about where and when it's okay to pee outside and at what age it's okay to pee outside. I'm wondering if I can do it now when I hit 90 or something like that. I wonder if it's an evolutionary thing. When you're talking the visceral response, mm -hmm. you know, where you have this gut response that's like, ooh, or whatever. Maybe it went back to evolutionary, it's okay, the kids, but the gut, you know, the people, the adults shouldn't be doing this. Well, except that, if, what was it in France? It was, I mean, they still have peace bars in France where it's pretty much the men are out there. I mean, yes, they're, the, the key parts are covered, but it's out in the open. And, First time and, I visited and, and, Italy in high school, in college days, the, those were the only bathrooms available were outside and open. I mean, it, it's like it's, I mean, in are medieval times when laboratories weren't available, yeah. Are we saying everything's acceptable? Uh, no, we are not. What about, I, I thought like people in airplanes, when you used to fly, people used to dress up. Now mm -hmm. you have a bunch of bones. <laughs> sure. They dress. Yeah, there's another example of where our standards about dress um, have changed over the years. And that may also have been a, been a, a class issue too that those who were, and I'm not sure about that, but I'm guessing that those who were, could afford to fly could afford to dress as well. And when it became more, when it became more um, bourgeois or more acceptable for all classes to fly, the dress code changed too. Well, what's interesting I think now is that we're in a time where fashion comes from what's worn on the street as opposed from what's worn by the air stars. Fashion is now coming. I mean, they literally go out. Fashion houses literally go out and see what is what people, the cool kids, are wearing. So it's not. I mean, it literally is coming up from the street. I'm gonna I'm gonna move through a couple more here before we go into some kind of. We will shift at the end briefly into kind of an introduction to the Levitical Purity Code, um, but uh, some of our purity rules are cultural. I grew up, and, and even in America, where we have a clash of cultures, I grew up, as I mentioned, in the upper Midwest, Minnesota, uh, and the family and the culture I grew up in, um, pierced ears were not a thing to do. There were some biblical reasons for that. There are Bible passages about uh, tattoos and piercings and things like that that we referred to, but it was really primarily a cultural thing. Then we moved, when I was in high school, we moved to Southern California. That's the first time I saw little Hispanic girls with earrings from the pierced ears from the time they were three and four. And the first time I saw that, it looked right. It's, that was part of their culture, that. And now it's, of course, spread to, to everybody else, too. But there, there's a time when two cultures were clashing, and what was totally appropriate in one culture was frowned upon in another one, and we had to change. 
And of course you can, um, what's the limit? At what point this one is still, you know, might be attractive. And we can, we can go into all kinds of stuff around this about how many piercings and where the piercings should be. Um, these are purity rules and they've been in flux. Tattoos likewise. My youngest daughter, when she was, uh, she was in, in um, studying in Malta in the Mediterranean in college, and she um, got a hold of me and said, um, Dad, I just want you to know that I've gotten a tattoo. Hers was the first tattoo in our family. And she wanted to, she, she wanted to break it to me gently before she got home. So she got home, and then she showed me it was one very much like this. It was on the back of her neck with her hair covering it, this beautiful little dove. And I looked at her and said, Debbie, you are trying so hard to be a rebel, and you're not doing it. <laughs> now, however, she has this amazingly gorgeous octopus that runs all down her arm, which I think is a gorgeous tattoo. She's got some ants around her ankle that I think are kind of creepy. And there's something else on her belly that I haven't seen for years. That was creepy, too. But I really like the octopus on her arm. Um, that's another cultural thing. Uh, Scandinavians, no, we didn't do tattoos, not back then. If you see a guy come in from the Maori culture, from, from Samoa or someplace like that, tattooed all over their bodies, and it looks gorgeous. It's part of that. So cultural culture is part of part of uh, purity matters as well. If uh, you were, if you had a tattoo in the fifties, you were in the navy. Yes. Or a biker. Yep. Or a biker. And then a biker after that. Yep. So let, let's ask about a couple. You mentioned you mentioned pandemic purity rules. We won't dwell on this a lot, but let's mention ones that you that you've seen. What are our new purity rules with the pandemic? Wearing masks. Wearing masks. Sanitizing. Sanitizing. Covering when you cough or sneeze. Covering when you cough or sneeze. Social distance. How many of you, if you're out for a walk now, and so you see someone coming the same way across the street? We didn't used to. Have you gone back to the old way yet? Okay. Yeah. There, we could go on a great length about those, but the pandemic, notice it's our fear of sickness. It's our fear of mortality. That it's our anxiety that brought out a bunch of new purity rules. And it will remain to be seen how, how long some of those last. Are there some that will be permanent? Are there others that will go by the boards? In church, we don't have communion the way we used to. In church, we don't have communion the way we used to. Yep. Common chalice. No common cup. Is there really a difference between the purity rules and the pandemic rules, though? Because Pandemic rules were mostly medical in nature, and some of the food rules were medical in nature, but a lot of it has to do with controlling, um, you know, difference of men and women's rules. Mm -hmm. It's a controlling issue, not, not something purity. So the question is, do, do the pandemic rules have more to do with medical things? Um, yeah, to start with, I would say. And there's um, and certainly our fear in that as well. Um, as, they, as things have gone on, we've changed those rules. Um, at the early days of the pandemic, if Peggy and I were out for a walk and stopped by one of those little libraries, and I'd pick up a book, or she'd pick up a book, we'd leave it on the front step for three days. 
because we didn't know how long, whether the contagion could be on that book or not. It, it didn't last very long. We stopped doing that. Yeah. But we did it for a while. Our mask use and other kind of distancing rules too. We've had to, we've had to flex with those along the way as we've learned. So yeah, that's, there's medical stuff in it, and there's also irrational fear running in it as well. Okay, what purity is all about, what purity codes are all about. I don't know if you can read that or not. They are about the marginal, the liminal, the liminal being kind of the threshold matters of life, boundaries, especially boundaries of the human body and the social body, and especially ultimate boundaries, birth, death, and sexuality. Those edgy, literally, edgy matters of our lives are the ones that produce the most purity boundaries. They are about the unsafe and the unsettling and the disturbing. What the community feels is unsafe or unsettling or disturbing. It's about what's dangerous. It's about chaos. Chaos coming loose. And it's about ordering our lives and keeping them safe. Whether, whether those orderings actually make sense or not. And finally, it's, they're about identity and belonging. If you, that was certainly true of the, of the Levitical Code, the Jewish purity law. That um, even says so in so many words in Leviticus 20, where God says, I'm asking you to follow these things, and that will show that you are my people. You are holy and you are separated from the rest of the folks. You are different. Now, purity is identity producing. And that's why in those early days of earrings when I was in high school, um, little girls wearing earrings was part of of um, Hispanic identity and not part of, part of Norwegian identity. That's just a comment. Um, I grew up in a Norwegian family mm -hmm. in the Lutheran church and my big goal was to turn 12 because when I got confirmed I could get my ears pierced. That was, yeah. I'm shocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When I was confirmed, I could drink my first cup of coffee. Oh, when I was confirmed, I was allowed to dance. All of you were allowed to go to Once I was confirmed, I would be allowed to dance. The dance. By which point, I had not learned. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what we're, what we're wrestling with in all of this is what is purity for? We, every culture has it. Our culture has it. And in the Bible, God adopts a purity code and uses it for a particular purpose. We'll explore that a lot more next week. What is it for? How does it serve us? Is there anything good? Health, health reasons, for example, and other kinds of respect things often come up in purity codes. What are they for? And what's the problem with them? Any thought right away about what's the problem with purity rules? They keep some people out. Yeah. They keep people out. That's what we're going to see with Jesus, especially is Jesus crossing all kinds of lines, but especially purity lines, because there's someone out there that's being written off by that line. Okay. So if you don't mind, do you mind if we go five, another five minutes since we started five minutes late? Just real quickly, is there any line? In other words, you're, you're talking about crossing the line. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it seems to me, like today, that there are no lines. And it leaves 
be kind of uncomfortable. And I'm not sure Me why, too. but pardon? Me too. I think that's a fair, fair thing to raise. And particularly um, with, with all of our, our gender and sexuality questions, um, are we at a place now where, uh, where our embrace is simply without boundaries and without rules of any kind? Without, without uh, are, are, is there a sexual ethic, a Christian sexual ethic, that's applicable to the kind of time we're living in now? And what would that be? I think um, I see Paul as doing some beautiful stuff with that. But it does raise, it does, it's not like, well, here are the new rules. It's a, instead, here is, how shall we assess this now? Is it anything goes? How do we embody the embrace of Jesus and live out the health that God wants for, for us all? It's a key question. Okay, a quick introduction to Levitical purity, and we'll dive into all this more next week. So the book of Leviticus, um, about 10 chapter block or so in Leviticus that's immersed in this. First piece is that there are three pairs of terms in the Old Testament that we get all mixed up and they were originally separate. One is clean and unclean or pure and impure. There are some things, some actions, some objects, some whatevers that are ritually impure and some that are ritually pure. And you can take something that's unclean and you can cleanse it and make it clean. Um, so that's a lot of what we'll be seeing in Leviticus. That's not the same as sin. Okay. The second term is what's the difference between something holy, or the other version of that is profane, and what is not part of what is common or profane, and what is holy. Something that's holy is something that has been taken from the ordinary world and separated out for a specific purpose, especially related to God. For example. Uh, you may have really fancy dishes in your house, but they're not the same as the temple dishes. The temple dishes are for what, for one purpose, and that's the that's the sacrificial and meal rituals of the temple. When King What's His Name from some other country took those and had a banquet off of them, God was ticked. Okay, those were holy. Now there is a move through up. So there are people who are ordinary people, and there are people who are holy because they're set aside for a purpose. Our saint language is involved in that too. You are holy, you're set aside for a purpose now. There are objects that are ordinary and there are objects that are holy. There are times that are ordinary and times that are holy, places that are ordinary and places that are holy. That's throughout the Old Testament. Jesus messes with that a lot, in case you're wondering. Um, and the way you move something from to be common to being holy is you sanctify it. You dedicate it. So this is cleansing, this is sanctifying. Set something aside. There is a passage at the end of uh, Zechariah where it looks toward the day when everything will be holy, even the bells on the horses' uh, collars will be holy to the Lord. You made a quick comment and then kept going, and I thought it was really interesting when you said impure, impurity is not the same thing as Right. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's important. I, I think that, yeah. And by the way, um, you can take something that's clean and make it holy. Something here. These could go together. You could take a common clean thing and sanctify it. You can't take an unclean thing and make it holy. You've got to cleanse it first. 
then you can make it holy. That's how the system works. Uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament's own language gets sloppy after a while, and sometimes you'll read passages where they mix the terms. So Isaiah calling out in the temple vision, uh, "Woe is me! I'm a, I am sinful and unclean." He's mixing two categories together. But there's the third term, sinful and righteous. That's a different set of terms yet. To be holy is not necessarily to be righteous. Holy is set apart for a purpose. Um, all of those are different categories, and that's important to know. So we're going to get into this in much more detail next time, but here are some initial questions about uh, Levitical purity. One of the questions is which bodily fluids are unclean? This is one of my favorite questions, and I love dealing with junior high kids, particularly with this one. Um, spit is not unclean. Pus is not unclean. Urine is not unclean. Feces are not unclean. There is one passage in Deuteronomy where it talks about when they're, when they're out in a, in a camp of war. In that situation, make sure that you go outside and dig a trench and relieve yourself there and bury it because God walks around in your camp and doesn't want to step in it. Something like that. But it's not unclean. Um, sweat is not unclean. Um, what else can you think of? Blood. Blood is unclean. Semen and vaginal fluids are unclean. The only two fluids involved in the purity code are blood and sexual fluids. What do they have in common that's different from all the others? Women. Women. Uh, men bleed too and also have sexual fluids. Well, yeah, but it was mostly the women with their menstrual cycle. Actually, no, it's evenly balanced in that chapter. They're more directly related to life. Life. These are the fluids of life and death. There's your first clue about what the security code is all about. Only the fluids of life and death are the ones that are involved in clean and unclean. Which animals, we'll spend more time on this next time too, which are the clean animals that you're allowed to eat? Um, I'll give you a quick summary. And you can eat chicken. Um, the animals that you are not allowed to eat, the, the four-footed ones, are carnivores. You can eat the ungulates, deer, sheep, cows, those guys. It has to do with the split hoof or something like that. It yeah, the business is there about the split hoof and the chewing the cud. That's not the reason why something's clean or unclean. That's one of the ways you can figure it out, which, which one it is. A test. Saves pork. Cow, uh, pigs are actually omnivores. And if you look at the birds, the list of birds, it doesn't say this in so many words in the text. But you just look at which ones they are. The birds that are all the birds that are unclean are all either raptors or carrion eaters. What's going on here? These are ones that any critter that's going to eat blood. You can't eat. More of that next time. Um, when is leprosy clean? There are two chapters in Leviticus on leprosy, which is not the leprosy that we know. It's a whole list, a whole series of different skin disorders and also disorders on your tent walls and things like that, uh, fungal, fungal kind of things. 
Um, that's what leprosy was all involved in in Leviticus. There, in the instructions for going in for cleansing, if you have a leprous spot that's showing up, you go to the priest and he says, yep, you got leprosy, it's unclean. If it reaches the spot where that leprosy has covered your entire body, you are clean. How's that for medicine? We'll see what that's about next time. That's about this. Why are mixtures unclean? Part of the rules and say you cannot wear fabric that's of two different, um, cannot wear clothes of two different fabrics, like silk and wool together. You cannot yoke two different animals together. You cannot hybridize animals. Uh, you can't sow two different seeds in the same field. It's all mixture, it's all unclean. That's where we're going next week. Let's pray. Lord, this is weird. And you're in it. Your hands are deep into the elbows with this stuff. Teach us, Lord. Shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.